My friends Pete and LeVan McLean have a family that turns heads when they walk through the mall or through the park on any given day. Pete and LeVan both have very fair skin, as do their beautiful children Grace, Isabel, and William. I'm sure they'd all turn hot pink if they laid on the beach here in Dubai in no time. And then there's the other two McLean boys, Habtamu and Amani, providing sharp visual contrast to their siblings in all the pictures that they post on Facebook. Habtamu and Amani have beautiful, dark, black skin. They're both from near the Horn of Africa. They're, they're both from Ethiopia. And when the McLean family is all mixed together, they look like a joyful piano keyboard. Whites and blacks alternating. When people see them, they know those boys are adopted. Some of you have children in your family, in fact, who are adopted. Maybe even some of you yourselves as adults, you were adopted as children. I've personally only read accounts of people um, meeting their adoptive children for the first time or I've been asked to pray for people as they fly to different countries, distant countries in fact oftentimes, to meet their adoptive children. It's such a different welcome into the family than how many of us came into our families. If your kids came into your family, if they were born into your family then the way you first met them was likely by holding them tenderly in the crook of your arm. But if your children were adopted, it might have even been that you shook your children's hand when you first met them. Regardless of whether adopted children come as infants or teenagers or somewhere in between, there is always one dynamic that is the same. One day they are strangers and the next day they are loved ones. One day they are foreigners, and the next day they are family. The two themes that we'll explore in our passage this morning in the Bible begin with, first, the woman from foreigner to family. If you're taking notes, it might be helpful for you to write down or jot down these two themes The woman from foreigner to family. The second theme we're going to explore in the passage is Jesus from hidden to heralded. Jesus from hidden to heralded. We're diving back into the book of Mark and we're looking at just seven short but powerful verses this morning. Turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7 beginning with verse 24. If you have a Bible, open it up. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Now I want to tell you and remind you of just a little bit of background before we plunge right in since we just came through the Easter season and we're looking at some different passages about the resurrection of Jesus. Leading up to this scene that we're about to lead, Jesus' public ministry has been busy and crowded and intense. He's made multiple attempts to get away, to rest with his disciples, only to have the crowds find him every time. When they first got away to a quiet place, a crowd of at least 5,000 hungry people showed up. And Jesus miraculously fed them because he had compassion on them. 
And then that night, the disciples had a frightening encounter with Jesus walking on the water past their boat during a storm on the Sea of Galilee. When they arrived in the morning on the opposite shore, as soon as they got out of the boat, they were rushed by enormous crowds. Sick and needy people were streaming from everywhere. Jesus has a tense clash with the religious leaders about what makes a person morally clean or unclean. And then... He has a frustrating private session with his disciples where he essentially says to them, don't you understand the parable that I just told? Are you so dull? Jesus and his disciples need rest. And so in this passage, in these verses, they set off to rest. Follow along with me beginning in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Jesus takes his tired and dull disciples and they retreat to a place that's outside of Jewish territory. Tyre, it's listed as, which is in present-day Lebanon. Do we have anyone here from Lebanon this morning? Oh, there we go. Okay. Have you been to Tyre? All right. Okay. So Tyre is still there today. This is a place that Jesus has never been to before. He's done no ministry there. And when he was there, in fact, they stayed inside the house so that no one would know that they were there. But amazingly, the word still gets out that Jesus is there. He's becoming known even in places where he's never visited. The word of his presence leaks to this woman and it says, quote, as soon as she heard about him, She came and fell at his feet. You see, her little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit and she obviously was desperate to have her made well. There are so many reasons that this unnamed woman does not belong in the house with Jesus. First of all, she's uninitiated. She has never met Jesus Furthermore, she's uninvited. She is essentially interrupting a private gathering. It says that Jesus intended for their meeting to be private and secret, in fact. She's unorthodox. In other words, she's from the wrong religion. She's a pagan. She's unclean. Culturally, she's Greek. And so she's ceremonially unclean as a pagan. And it would have even been forbidden for Jesus, a Jew, 
to be in the house with her. And not only that, but you'll remember that her little daughter has an evil spirit. She's living at home with an evil spirit in the house. She's doubly unclean. She's a foreigner. She was born into what was Syrian territory called Phoenicia. She's of the wrong nationality. She's not an Israelite. And, last but not least, she's a she. She's of the wrong gender. She's a pagan woman approaching a Jewish man. There was every reason for her to stay away from Jesus. And she must have been aware of this more than anyone else there. Imagine it, this pagan woman barges into the room that was likely full of at least 13 Jewish men. Sounds uncomfortable to me. And yet, she comes to Jesus. Every week, it is such a joy to see and meet so many different kinds of people that are coming to Redeemer. Different nationalities and ages. Some of you are Christians, and some of you are not Christians. Those of you who are not Christians, uh, perhaps you've come, you're willing to come because maybe a loved one invited you, or maybe you have friends here and they've invited you to come. Maybe you like the singing, or maybe you're seriously investigating Christianity. We're really glad you're here. Every week we're glad you're here, and we want you to keep coming. But I want to ask you a direct question at the very beginning of my sermon. What is keeping you from beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ? What is keeping you from beginning a personal relationship with Jesus? It could be for some of you that you think, it's just that I don't know if I belong in this thing called Christianity. It's not my background. Or maybe you can think of all the reasons why you think Jesus wouldn't want you. Maybe sin in your past. Maybe you think that you need to know the Bible better before you come to Jesus. Or maybe you're still a little weirded out by church or people like us, church people. Or maybe it's sin in your life right now. You think there are lots of reasons that you shouldn't or couldn't become a Christian. Just like this woman. She had lots of reasons not to come to Jesus. And yet, she came. And you too need only come to Him. Humbly, aware of your need, aware of His power over sin and death. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've dealt with in the past. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with right now. Don't let anything stop you from coming to Jesus. Nothing seemed to be able to stop this woman, did it? What was driving her? Tim Keller when talking about this passage says, and I'm paraphrasing, there are different kinds of people in the world. There are cowards. There are regular people. There are heroes. But then there's a whole other category on the spectrum of courage. Desperate parents. 
Desperate parents have courage unlike any other type of person, don't they? If your child is in danger or hurt or sick and the situation is dire, a parent has more courage than any military hero that you could name. This woman loves her little daughter deeply and nothing will stop her from getting to the one that she believes can do something about it. And as she's kneeling there, continuing to beg Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter, one of the most unexpected things that Mark ever tells us about Jesus happens. Jesus seems to say no to a begging mother. And not only that, but he speaks to her as if he's calling her a dog. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. So many of our sensibilities about Jesus are jarring right here when we read these verses. And it's it's almost hard to continue reading. We do a double take, many of us, when we read this. Some of you may be familiar with WWJD bracelets. They were kind of all the craze in some Christian circles a number of years ago. WWJD stood for What Would Jesus Do? And uh, it was uh, emblazoned on a bracelet, and it was supposed to help you to pause throughout your day and your week in any situation that you encountered and ask the question, what would Jesus do if he were in my situation right now? But a WWJD bracelet would seem to lead you astray if you were studying this passage in your quiet time. Let's see. WWJD. Hmm. If a desperate person needs my help, I should tell them no and insult them in the process. <laughs> no, that's, that's uh, maybe that doesn't seem right. And, and perhaps it demonstrates the limits of asking what would Jesus do in any particular situation. But this is a thorny passage right here that's difficult for us to initially grasp so we need to untangle it jesus is speaking to this woman in the form of a parable a parable is a metaphor if you remember reading through the book of mark in chapter four there was a big parable that jesus told it was the parable of the sower it was a story about a farmer who went out and sowed seed And Jesus explains that metaphor or that parable in chapter 4. This is also a little fictional life situation that Jesus has painted for this woman that relates to what's going on broadly in the situation. So think about what Jesus says when he speaks to her. The children at the table, in Jesus' statement, would be the Israelites or the Jews. The children. The bread would be Jesus Himself and the good news of His kingdom. The dogs near the table would be Gentiles or non-Jews. So Jesus is saying, first the children must eat. First the Jews must encounter Jesus and His gospel. It's not right for the Gentiles to have access to Him yet. The Jews had the Scriptures, of course, foretelling of His coming. Do you remember the verses that we read earlier? Shujo read to us from Isaiah. 600 years before the coming of Jesus, they foretold His coming. 
and that he was coming for the Gentiles as well. But that might sound a little selfish. God's plan, though, God's plan of salvation was that the Jews would receive Jesus, reject him, crucify him, and then some of those very same Jews would put their faith in that resurrected Jesus and would, in obedience to his instruction, take his gospel to the whole world. That was God's plan. His life on earth was for the Jews first. His work through the Holy Spirit after the resurrection was for the whole world. So Jesus is telling her, it's not yet time for you Gentiles. Now, that's pretty deep stuff to say in one little metaphor or parable, isn't it? And, and some of you, based on the looks on your faces, are still thinking to yourself, yeah, but he still called her a dog, didn't he? When we first arrived in Dubai almost nine years ago, we arrived with our barely one-year-old dog, Winston. Winston is a small dachshund or dash hound. He weighs about seven kilos, and he barks vigorously and loudly when anyone comes to the door, including me, his master. We had friends among a group of Indians with whom we prayed for students and student ministry during that time, and sometimes they would come over to our home for that prayer meeting. On one particular visit, an Indian woman named Surya came to the door, and Winston, of course, began barking loudly and jumping up and down and was crowding her as I opened the door. I was, I was really nervous about bothering, him bothering her. And so I tried, as I was greeting her, to calm him down and, and get him to stop. Only, as I was speaking to Winston, I got the names mixed up in my head. <laughs> and, and, and so as I stood there looking down at Winston, I said, Down, Surya! Down, Surya! <laughs> I don't think she was a dog person, based on the look on her face. She was a little shocked. And that, was, that is just one of the many cross-cultural mistakes that I've made over the years here in Dubai. Calling someone a dog is kind of harsh, even if it is a mistake. But that's not exactly the situation here. The Greek word here means a small dog, a house pet in Greek culture, kind of like my dog Winston, not, not like a scavenger dog out on the streets. And Jesus is relating her to a dog in the story. It's, it's not the same as saying, you're a dog. There's a, a deeper meaning behind what he's saying. And still more, and this is the biggest point I think that we need to take away from this passage while we might feel offended for her, she doesn't seem the least bit offended. So why should we take offense for her when she doesn't? Rather than be shocked that Jesus is relating to her to a dog in this parable, she utters what is one of the most insightful and stunning replies in all of Mark. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She got the parable. More than that, she could reply to Jesus in the parable language and press her request to Him. Now, I want to remind you 
of some puzzling verses, perhaps, from back in Mark chapter 4. I'm just going to read them to you. You don't have to turn back to there. And they, I believe, are being fulfilled by her right now. Jesus is trying to explain his parables to his disciples, and he says, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Do you see? She was hearing and understanding. She was seeing and perceiving. She was considering carefully what she heard. And she used her measure of spiritual understanding in her clever reply, and she was given more. Jesus commended her then, of course. He performed another first of his miracles. I don't know if you've noticed that. Casting out a demon, of course, was something that he had been doing regularly. But this time, he casts the demon out of someone who's not even in his presence. This unlikely Gentile woman is the first person in the book of Mark, the entire book of Mark, to understand one of Jesus' parables and even to be able to reply to him in that parable language. And all of this, all of this, mind you, is taking place in front of the twelve chosen disciples who had spent months, perhaps even years at this point, under Jesus' tutelage and his training, and just prior to this little trip to Tyre, could not understand even a simple parable and were deemed dull by Jesus. When I read this, I can't decide if Jesus was genuinely surprised by her answer or if perhaps when she barged through the door, he could see her faith so clearly as she fell down at his feet that he purposely posed a parable-like invitation to her knowing that she would reply with spiritual hunger and insight and in so doing teach these disciples behind him that they must soften their hearts and understand who he is. She understood who he was far more than they did at this point. And she had only heard about him. God is unbelievably holy. And He is unimaginably good and loving as well. And we were created, all of us, to mirror or image that holiness, love, and goodness. But we all have rejected Him. And so we've also rejected then true holiness and goodness and love as well. And so we find ourselves as enemies of God rather than the children of God that we were intended to be. So God, in His boundless grace, sent Jesus His only Son, holy, good, and loving, just like the Father, to become an enemy of the Father for a time on the cross, receiving the judgment that enemies of God must receive, death. And the Father raised Him up from the dead, 
to show his approval of him and to demonstrate his power to save spiritually dead people like us. We see in this woman the proper response to that gracious offer from a good, loving, and holy God. And that's the kind of response that anyone, anywhere, at any time in history must have in order to be received by this God and to be given eternal life. She came in humility. Humility is absolutely necessary for repentance, which is a turning away from our sins. It's taking the side of God against our sins and saying, yes, I am guilty. She came believing that Jesus had the power to free her daughter. And we also must come to Jesus believing that He is the Son of God and has the power to free us from sin and death. She entrusted herself to Jesus' goodness and pressed forward with her request in reply to Him. We must entrust ourselves to this holy and fearsome yet unbelievably good King. Jesus. If you're a Christian, are you continuing in this kind of response to Him? Repenting, believing, and trusting? Are you remembering that even on your best days, you come to Him based on His work on the cross and His work on the cross alone? It doesn't matter how many years you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long ago you did that. You must be doing it as well. That's the beginning of how to live a gospel-centered life, you see. The gospel is both how people enter into the kingdom of God and it's how people continue and grow in the kingdom of God. And the gospel is also the message believed and trusted in that will save you on the day of judgment. Here's a little way to help you remember this. Maybe throughout the week. It's something I've been practicing for myself when I go to try and pray or when I go and read Scripture or even perhaps sometimes when I gather together with other Christians. I say to myself or I may even say out loud, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And then I speak to Jesus from that position. Or I look at His Word from that position. That's, it's just a line from a hymn, but it describes my life and your life if you're a Christian every single day. Nothing in your hand you bring. Simply to the cross you cling. Are you not a Christian? You can become one today. Acknowledge your rebellion against Him. Ask for His forgiveness and the eternal life that comes to us only through His cross. And move forward, living life with Him as your King. Don't wait to try and clean up your life for Jesus. You can't do it. But He can. You need Him first. I began by telling you that we'd speak about this woman who moved from foreigner to family. Do you see that she got more than the crumb that she asked for? 
Despite all the reasons that she shouldn't have been here, her, there, through her faith in Jesus, she was made clean. She became family, in effect. Jesus, of course, would later become a dog, in effect, hanging on the cross so that she could become one of the children sitting at the table. You know, Jesus described heaven at one point in time as a large banquet. A large banquet where where all those who are His children by faith in Him sit and feast with Him eternally. This woman pressed for a crumb and now she's sitting at the banquet table of the Lamb. Now when we realize that she has become family, it becomes apparent that Mark is obviously telling us this story for a bigger reason than just to showcase her faith. He's telling us that this Jesus will eventually go from being hidden to being heralded one day. Heralded to the Gentiles everywhere and in every nation. Remember Mark 4 again? Jesus said to His disciples, listen carefully, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. And do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, you put it on its stand. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. You see, I think it's no accident that Mark told us in verse 24 of this text that we read today, He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet, he could not keep his presence secret. Some versions even say, yet he could not be hidden. For a time, Jesus was secret and hidden amongst the Israelites. He would one day be heralded to the world. And this woman's story is a preview to that great future. And in fact, the next seven verses in this chapter, immediately following this story, continue with the same theme. Jesus moves from this part of Gentile territory, entire, up to Sidon, and then down to the opposite side of the lake of Sea of Galilee, which is called um, Decapolis. And there, some people, many people were bringing the sick and needy to Jesus to be healed and to have demons cast out of them. But the important thing to know about this region is it's a Gentile region, and Jesus has been there before. He just landed on the beach back in chapter 5, and he encountered a man with thousands of demons in him, and he cast them all out. And the man wanted to go with Jesus, but he wouldn't let him. He said, go back to your people and tell them what God has done for you. The people were begging Jesus to leave. They were scared of him. And so when Jesus returns to this territory, what do we see has happened? This man, a John the Baptist, a preparer of the way for Jesus to the Gentiles, has done his work. And people are thronging to see Jesus. After Jesus had died and was raised to life, Jesus told his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations. Syrian Phoenicians, Lebanese and Indians and Sri Lankans. Filipinos and Germans and South Africans. 
Kenyans and Nigerians, Americans and Chinese and Australians and Emiratis. Redeemer Church, are you hiding the gospel from anyone or any group of people? The gospel is made to be proclaimed, to be heralded to everyone. Are you offering this Jesus to anyone who will receive Him? Hindus or partiers from your school or your workplace? Muslims or people living a homosexual lifestyle? Your children or your neighbors or even the most challenging family members? Dave Furman has often said from the front here that it is no accident that you are here in Dubai. God brought each and every one of us here for a reason. And it all centers, of course, on knowing Christ better and making Him known in this place. Knowing Christ better and making Him known in this place. In recent weeks, I've had wonderful conversations with many of you afterwards in these very seats, after the services, talking to you about how you're doing in your walk with Jesus or some of you, if you're not Christians, talking to you about where you are on a spiritual journey, what's your spiritual background and what you think about Jesus. I want to encourage you to talk with someone afterwards. Maybe someone that you've never met before, someone that you're sitting next to even perhaps, at least learn their name. Ask them perhaps even what their thoughts are on the sermon. Maybe another question you could ask them is, ask them to tell you about their spiritual background or their spiritual journey. These are questions that can help us understand where one another are spiritually so that we can be of help to one another. And, you know, if you're really insecure and uncomfortable doing this, I encourage you to do it in groups of twos or threes. Even in the food court afterwards when we gather for lunch together, many of us. Have conversations about Jesus and important things. That's at least one small step that we can take to make this Jesus known. We can herald Him to Dubai and the rest of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You and thank You that You came that you lived a perfect life, that you died a death you didn't deserve, and that you were raised on the third day so that we might go from foreigners to family in your presence, in the Father's presence. And furthermore, because of that, when we repented and put our faith and trust in you, you placed in us your Holy Spirit, your very presence, which guarantees that we are yours, guarantees that you'll never lose us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We praise you and thank you for that. And Lord, it is your name that we pray would be heralded through us in this land and in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.